morning and welcome to Rising. We have a great post-Super Bowl show for you today. Congratulations, of course, to any Kansas City fans out there. We will uh, be discussing the game a little bit later. Did you watch any of it? I did. I watched all of it. Me too. Um, it was it was interesting. We'll get into this a little bit later, but there were a lot of events happening last night. The timeline was very mixed in terms of content from the game and content from world events, which we'll be covering later. Um, but it was, you know, satisfying to see yeah. on some level the outcome that a lot of the country was rooting for for reasons outside of football <laughs> kind of come to fruition. It started a little slow, but it ended up being a good sure. game, a, a kind of a, a historical overtime match. Um, but first... Let's yeah. get into some meat and potatoes news, of the real yes. news cycle. Now, concerns about President Biden's age continue to dominate headlines as voters are increasingly unsure he's got the mental acuity to do the job. The Hill reported on a new poll showing more than 85 percent of Americans think Biden is too old following a bruising report by special counsel Bob Herr. In his report, Herr exonerated Biden of any wrongdoing when it came to mishandling classified documents but alleged that Biden was an elderly man with a poor memory and thus was unable to recall a number of facts from his past, including those surrounding his son's death. The White House responded to her report with a media blitz designed to allay fears surrounding Biden's age alongside attacks on her himself. Axios reports that Biden officials, led by Vice President Kamala Harris, questioned her's motives, echoing Biden's anger that her's zinger about Biden's memory overshadowed her's decision not to charge the president over his handling of classified documents. Some Democrats took the report from her as a wake-up call that voters are deeply concerned with Biden's age. Failed 2016 presidential nominee Hillary Clinton even conducted an interview with MSNBC where she called the president's age a, quote, legitimate issue. Meanwhile, many conservatives began to question the seeming hypocrisy on the part of the mainstream media surrounding how the story of Biden's mental health travails and Trump's alleged issues. Trump's son, Don Jr., responded to a headline from The New York Times urging caution in diagnosing memory loss. Don Jr. wrote, quote, lol, now The New York Times wants you to be very careful about diagnosing mental decline. Never stopped him before. What changed? The diagnosis at this point is irrelevant because it doesn't take a doctor to understand Joe Biden's sharp decline. We see it before our eyes every day. And frankly, that would be my answer to um, Democratic frustration over what her said in his statement. Look, we're seeing press conferences, interviews with Joe Biden every day where he says the wrong name. He names people who have been dead for decades. Um, when he lost his train of thought during that answer about Hamas and the yes. a potential ceasefire agreement, he told that the media actually had to help him out there. Reporters had to remind him what he was talking about. Right. We're seeing more of that day to day. So it's not really, you know, they're acting like her was injecting this idea into, into the mainstream discourse, but talk to anyone out there in the real world, and they have grave concerns about Biden's age. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I, I think that there is an argument, and Democrats maybe have a right to be frustrated about the extent to which her, in this uh, paper, uh, report, seemed to go out of his way to say that Biden was mentally failing in these very specific ways. That being said, I do agree with you that we didn't need this report for confirmation. I will say that this seems to have unlocked uh, something within Democratic pundits and politicians alike who seem to have been, like, suppressing their desire to talk about the obvious ever since 
2020, to be frank. And now, after the, the news cycle of Friday, which was really disastrous from Biden, it seems like the dogs have been unleashed. So just to, to really recap, what happened was after this report, there was, of course, a media cycle about how, oh, my gosh, the whole reason that Biden is not really being held accountable for this, this um, document mishandling is because he's perceived to be just genuinely forgetful and not have the mental competency. He followed up with a press conference that was supposed to allay people's fears, that was supposed mm -hmm. to say, hey, look, guys, I'm good, I'm competent, I can do this job. And in that press conference, he mixed up the president of Egypt and the president yep. of Mexico. <laughs> yep. So, like, in the press conference that he was supposed to be riding the ship, he doubled down on the exact kind of gaffe that he's been getting trouble in trouble for for weeks, back-to-back and back-to-back weeks and news cycles now. And so I think that now we have pundits talking heads all over the liberal channels talking about, is it going to be Kamala Harris? Are they going to replace him at the convention? Even Hillary Clinton talking about how this is a legitimate concern for the voting public and not raising speculation yeah. about whether Hillary Clinton is going to throw her hat in the ring again. I looked at the polling again. Two-thirds of Americans think Biden's age is a significant issue, including a majority of Democrats. It's like a slim majority. It's like 55 percent. So, of course, it's an issue. I mean, she has to say it. She has to acknowledge that it, well. it's an issue. <laughs> um, the qu question becomes, are they going to do anything about it? And I, frankly, don't think they will, because they is Joe Biden on some level. I've said this before. There's not really anyone who can force him from the throne unless he agrees to go. And I've seen no indication. I mean, honestly, if we knew it was going to start getting this bad so quickly, he, he should have declined. He should have said, I'm not going to seek another term. And, you know, I'll, he can throw his weight behind Kamala Harris if he wants, or they can have an actual contest to determine whether it be her or someone else. Yeah. But um, I think it's too late for that, and I don't think he has any indication that he wants to do that. Yeah, as CNN did a story a couple of days ago analyzing the number of interviews done by recent presidents as a kind of indicator of how willing they've been to come before the public and how maybe concerned they are or not about their ability to come off well in front of the public. So Obama, by this point in his presidency, had done 422 interviews. Trump, by this point in his presidency, had done 300 interviews. Biden, at this point in his presidency, has done 83 interviews. Yeah. Orders of magnitude less than these other two most... If I was his handlers, I'd be afraid to put him in front of a camera as well, because he can't, he can't get through basic, easy interviews. He, uh, in that press conference you're referring to on Friday, he had a, I think it was a response to Ducey. Mm -hmm. I think it was Ducey. It might have been another reporter where he, he, he got combative and it was supposed to be like, a, you know, slamming the, the door shut on this question of my age. And he, he jumbled that. It didn't mm -hmm. make sense what he was saying. Mm -hmm. It was so bad. Yeah, the cat's really out of the bag on this one. And people who I think have, I mean, I know, have been defending Biden through hell and high water. Um, you know, people like Bill Maher, who have been really consistent on Trump as a threat to democracy, and therefore we cannot abide yeah. any criticism of Joe Biden and the yeah. Democratic Party. Uh, in a recent segment, he was basically flipping the argument and basically sounding a lot like what Dean Phillips has been saying for a long time now, which is that if it is true that Tr Donald Trump is a threat to democracy and Democrats think that if Donald Trump is going to be reelected, democracy in America as we know it is going to come to an end, right. then what is the wisdom of electing a historically uh, a, a candidate with historically high unfavorables who is in observable cognitive and physical decline and not allowing there to be simply a process by which we could vet 
the American public, vet, vet other candidates to see if the American public has an appetite for anybody in the yeah. alternative. Really putting us in a position where it is frankly likely that Donald Trump will win. Nate Silver had that made that exact point on Twitter. He said, you don't demonstrate your seriousness that Trump is an existential threat to democracy by going through the motions to renominate an 81-year-old with a 38% approval rating who 75% of voters think is too old without giving anyone a choice because that's just how things are done. Yeah. It's incredible. I will note also that we certainly have been ringing this alarm bell for a very long time on this show. We have consistent, consistently advocated for a primary process and have been unflinching and talking about these legitimate concerns about the president's kind of cognitive capacity long before it became socially acceptable to yes. do so. And I only, I can only think about what better position the Democrats would be, and although I don't really care about that, but better position democracy would be in if more journalists had not chosen it until the House was falling down around them before they were willing to state the obvious and report on the obvious. Thank so. you. I think you're very right. More rising right after this. Well, Biden seems to be having a rough go at it. Trump is making sure the spotlight remains squarely on him for some controversial statements during a recent appearance in South Carolina. Trump said America would refuse to protect a NATO ally if they were attacked by Russia and refused to pay their dues to NATO. Trump added he would encourage Russia to, quote, do whatever the hell they want. Let's this comes as Trump posted on Truth Social, encouraging a halt in so-called foreign aid giveaways. Trump wrote, from this point forward, no money in the form of foreign aid should be given to any country unless it is done as a loan, not just a giveaway. We should never give money anymore without the hope of a payback or without strings attached. Trump's fortunes in other areas seem to be looking up. Politico reports that Trump and the influential and until now anti-Trump Club for Growth have allegedly buried the hatchet. Trump went to dinner with Club for Growth head David McIntosh, possibly indicating a detente between those two sides. Now, while Trump and the Club for Growth seem to have ended their spat, tensions between Trump and GOP competition Nikki Haley still white hot. Per The Hill, Haley on Sunday called former President Trump's questioning of her military husband's whereabouts insulting to military families. Trump spoke at a campaign event in Conway, South Carolina on Saturday when he questioned why Haley's husband is not with her on the campaign trail. Hmm. All right. If there's something almost um, retro and quaint about having a news cycle about uh, Donald Trump disrespecting veterans. John McCain. Right. That's what it reminds us of. It reminds me of that. But it also, frankly, just reminds me of the early Trump years, where he did get into trouble for, I think, uh, crossing certain shibboleths that were considered to be really core to what it meant to be a Republican running for president. You know, I, you know, I would have gotten caught if I were John McCain. I, you know, yeah. I like, I like winners, not captors. Yeah. All that sort of, you know, gold star families, all of that stuff was, uh, latched onto by liberals early in the Trump phenomenon, thinking that you could appeal to the stated morals and values of traditional Republican voters to create a wedge between Donald Trump and that cohort, and it never really worked. And so it's interesting to see the same game plan yeah. being trotted out again. It's not that I don't think Nikki Haley is wrong. I mean, I, I, Nikki Haley's husband is somewhere. He's doing his job, sure. which is more than a lot of people in the Trump camp can say. But what, what what's going to come of it? What kind of, what will come of the hay that's being made? And again, it also just doesn't help him in any way to make these kinds of remarks. Um, so I don't know it why he does. Him. It doesn't. It also doesn't hurt him. It, I, there's no... 
It doesn't help him, though, and uh, he could... Right now, what he has to do is set people at ease, like this meeting with the Club for Growth, mm -hmm. and it doesn't help him in those camps. Maybe it doesn't matter overall, but mm -hmm. it's just... I don't know why you would do it. Now, uh, now from the earlier stuff, yeah. that is attacking things people that I would say that um, elite tastemakers, gatekeepers, yeah. act as if these are shibboleths, and he's, he is violating some kind of sacred compact, and everyone will be outraged when actual Republican voters, probably a lot of non-Republican voters too, frankly, mm -hmm. agree that people, uh, other countries in NATO, our, our allies, need to be paying their fair share if we're going to defend them, that foreign aid has gotten totally out of control, that it is not helpful to the American um, defense policy to give unlimited amounts of money to foreign governments without any strings attached, without any return on these investments. Yeah. He is saying things there that are actually popular with the American people, that are popular with probably many Democrats and progressives and leftists and independents as well, in terms of not you know, funding endless war without any idea what the overall principle is here. You know, in terms of Ukraine and Russia, now, should he have, shouldn't, I would say you shouldn't like, give some sort of blanket permission or license to Russia or Putin or anyone like that. But the basic point that we have been paying for the defense of Europe, rather than the most affected countries by this, you know, how Zelensky describes it as this existential conflict, mm -hmm. like the rest of Europe is about to be invaded. Well, France isn't taking it very seriously, if that's the case. Neither is Germany, neither is the UK. Why are we on the hook for so much of it when it's their, it's their backyard? Right. I mean, I think you're right about there being a broad objection to uh, skyrocketing uh, military spending. But I do—that uh, has shades to it, right? Trump's framing of this as though it's some kind of mob protection racket that the United States is offering to the rest of the globe. Hey, you pay me your shares, and we will protect you. Yeah. Isn't exactly— Well, I don't know. That's kind of what it is. But, but that's never been how it's sold, right? And I think there's well, something right. useful He's... about him pulling off the veneer yeah. of this. But so, for one— we're not, the mob protection racket, I think, is false in two ways. For one, we're not protecting other people because they pay us. We're protecting other other countries, other specific countries, because it is in our geopolitical interest, our military interest. Right. We refer to Israel as a, like, air, air, airland, um, an airplane tanker in the Middle East for us to land our ships and, and place our resources. And let's not get it twisted. None of this has ever been out of the benefit of our heart. And that leads into the other thing, well, sure. which is that it's really pulling back the veil of the narratives that have been spun to get the American public to accept all of this military spending, which is that we're spreading democracy. We're protecting our allies across the world. Think about what we were told as the October 7th conflict got up and going last year, which is that Israel is one of our closest allies. We have to defend Israel at all costs. People like Hakeem Jeffries for years talking about Israel as the sixth borough of New York. We have a very special relationship. Elon Musk and, of, and John Fetterman putting on the dog tags. There's all this symbolism that suggests it's almost like a familial obligation. Um, we share the same values. They are the only democracy in the Middle East. And when you have Donald Trump starting to talk in this very different way, it really exposes the extent to which all of that is a cloud of fooey. Now, I do think there's something real there, that the underlying geopolitical interests are still there, which is why the establishment is going to be upset with Donald Trump for speaking right. in these, these terms. But it's not because they have some deep commitment to democracy. Right, right. And that's what he's—yeah, he's saying the quiet part out loud in a, in a clarifying way. And if we're going—and what he said there that I think will resonate with so many people is, if you're going to give 
foreign military aid, what is it we're getting out of it? Why are we doing this? Because under the Biden administration, where I, I don't even understand what his philosophy of, of making the world a safer place even is, well, the because he careens wildly reason. from one <laughs> so to the other. That's the problem. Like, Trump might not be aware of the reasons or may have forgotten the reasons, but the establishment has its reasons. It's protecting various energy reserves. It's maintaining yeah. um, American natural gas dominance. It is having military silos in different parts of the world. I mean, there are reasons. And I think that's what the dissonance here is, that there's a kind of anti-establishment veneer to what Donald Trump is saying. And there are both, there's an, a, both an establishment and anti-establishment objection to what Donald Trump is saying, because he's not quite hitting the truth of the matter, even though the effect of what he's saying would satisfy multiple constituencies in the United States. And speaking of, of which this isn't just an abstraction when we're talking about this military funding. On, what was it, Friday, um, the Senate moved forward with a vote uh, with 67 senators who voted to approve this $95 billion aid package, the clean uh, funding bill, as it were. Remember, this is what Democrats wanted to do in the first instance last year, and Republicans insisted that if you wanted to fund uh, Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan, that you had to get a border package going. Democrats called Republicans bluff, gave them a very conservative border package, and because that was perceived to basically kill Trump's ability to run on uh, Democrats' border malfeasance. They killed that, and now we're back to this clean bill, which did pass it to 60 votes. They got 67. So Republicans were not overwhelmingly, but enough in the on Senate. board in the Senate. But we'll see. Now the House is the a House is making a lot of. I'm hearing a lot of um, anti this bill sentiment. Um, again, along the lines Trump is saying here, specifically that how much more aid are we going to get Ukraine? This is another hundred billion dollars out the door, or however much it is at this point. That the it, from a country that is indebted to a country Israel that it, that it has. Much less of a debt problem than we do. So why would we do that? Yeah. What is the what is the argument? And if it's just about if it's about promoting our interests, well, what do those interests cost? Yeah. How much? It, maybe it's beneficial to us to a certain dollar amount, but is it a hundred? Is it worth a hundred billion? Is it worth two hundred billion? Five hundred billion? How much is this going to go on? Especially if it gets us in a broader regional war. Right. Especially that no one wants. Humanitarian implications. That none of the Americans and want. And frankly, bad poll results for Joe Biden, which are linked to foreign policy in Israel, which we will be getting to in more detail coming up shortly. So please do stay around. We have more Rising coming up next. Updates from the siege on Gaza, where the Israeli military launched a massive assault against civilians in Rafah, Gaza, last night. Rafah was supposedly a safe location where Palestinian refugees had congregated, had been told to congregate over the course of the last four months. As Congressman Jamal Bowman put it, while we watched the Super Bowl, Netanyahu launched a wave of attacks and killed innocent civilians in Rafah, a place where many refugees fled for relative safety, despite warnings from Biden. Netanyahu's government is unfit to lead anything and cannot receive support. This comes as a horrifying story about a six-year-old Palestinian girl named Hind, who was killed by the IDF, is circulating this tragedy, started back on January 29th when Hind and her uncle, aunt, and cousins attempted to flee Gaza City as it was under bombardment by Israel. The car came under fire, and survivors reached out in a now infamous call to the Palestinian Red Cross. As the Red Cross attempted to conduct a rescue, they say their ambulance was del deliberately targeted, killing two rescuers. Now, 12 days after her family's attempted evacuation, Hind was found killed, her body still lying in the car from which she made a desperate plea for help 
while trapped under Israeli fire. Just meters away from the battered and bullet-ridden vehicle, first responders and members of Hines' own family also found a burned-out ambulance with the remains of the two first responders who tried to save her from the Palestinian Red Crescent. This is what the Palestinian Red Crescent Society told NBC News. The negative press for Israel comes as the country claims it found a Hamas data center under UNRWA's Gaza headquarters. The Times of Israel reported that IDF forces found this data center. It was powered by an electrical room, industrial battery power, banks, and with living quarters for Hamas operatives operating the computer servers. It was built precisely under the headquarters. UNRWA's Commissioner General Philippe Lazzarini denied allegations that there was a Hamas data center under the building. Meanwhile, Israel appears to be losing international allies. Japan's Nippon aircraft supply has also ended ties with Israeli defense company Elbit Systems. Uh, so increasingly, you're seeing, uh, in, in, from an international trade perspective, people willing to withdraw their relationships with Israel over the expanding crisis. It's pretty remarkable. I, I don't know. It's, it's increasingly difficult to cover because, frankly, the volume of news coming out of Gaza is so much that it's difficult to know where to start. You have these discrete stories about human tragedy. I think the little girl, Hine, came into sharp focus in part because the distress call that she made from the vehicle was so visceral and went so viral because it was so human. And it helped, I think, cut through the massive scale of the tragedy that's unfolding. At the same time, those individual stories are just repeated over and over and over again. Um, as this population of 2.3 million people now has, you know, one out of 100 people killed and no clear end to the end of the crisis. Obviously, as we covered last week, Netanyahu rejected a, um, a deal which would have had all of the hostages uh, released in exchange for a ceasefire, but they do not want a ceasefire. They're saying that they're going to keep fighting until Hamas has been eliminated, a goal which right. experts across the political spectrum, whether they are kind of a Zionist or pro-Palestinian has said is very unlikely or impossible to achieve. So here we are. Here we are. Um, does this reporting about the um, the the data center under UNRWA's headquarters? Um, how are you processing that? Does well, that change your opinion about cutting off funding? No, actually, because that reporting is unraveling as we speak. So, um, oh, really? Mehdi Hassan and Ryan Grimm were covering this a little bit this morning. Um, but this is, seems to be, appears to be a part of a pattern that we see. We saw it when we talked about the hospital bombings months ago. There was breathless accounts of how Israel would never and could never bomb a hospital. And we got the tapes that were supposed to confirm that the hospital could not have been bombed by Israel because there was this recording that Arab, uh, uh, Arabic speakers said does, does not sound like it's Palestinian voices, et cetera, but that was supposed to confirm that uh, it was a terrorist group that had conducted the bombing. And regardless of what you think about what happened in that instance, we've now, three months into it, seen, seen every hospital in northern Gaza bombed by Israel unequivocally. We've seen every university in Gaza bombed and destroyed by Israel. We've seen at least 16, um, uh, what do you call them, uh, cemeteries desecrated by Gaza. And we saw the story about how there was supposed to be this big command center under al-Shifa hospital completely crumble after we were given CGI images of what the bunkers were supposed to look like and all of this information in the lead up to the attack on that hospital come to find out that none of that was there. We covered the story about how there were the three guns leaned up against the MRI machine, and that was supposed to be the 
the headquarters of Hamas. Now, similarly, reporting seems to be trickling out that these claims that the this data center that justified the siege on, on Rafah also is unsubstantiated as well. So, no, it doesn't change very much. At the oh. end of the day, Israel is responsible, as our own president said. Joe Biden hasn't been very good on this, but rhetorically he did say that they should not have a siege on Rafah where all of these civilians were told to go unless there was an evacuation plan or some kind of plan that could ensure the humanitarian needs of this population were taken care of. Well, I'm just all I can go off of is reporting from the Wall Street Journal that says it is a Hamas data center, that it has been under the headquarters for years, that part of the parking lot there collapsed in 2014 because of what was underneath it, that everyone there, a former UNRWA official said, everyone knew about that, and it was used to steal supplies from UNRWA for Hamas. So that's well, let me ask the you claims this. of The Wall Street Journal. Um, hundreds of people were killed last night, including dozens of children. I mentioned before, I don't know if we're able to show it or willing to show it, but there's a very viral image going around of a girl hanging from the side of a wall with both of her legs ripped off, and it is what it sounds like. Is that justified? Like, at what point, how many civilian deaths, how many child deaths? Um, there was new reporting um, with a new updated number of child deaths, almost half of the population that's been killed out of the 27,000 or so. I think it's like 11 or 12,000 now, or children specifically. I mean, are we I mean, really saying, is the argument really that if there's Hamas under the ground, which there's Hamas all over the, under the ground in Gaza, because that's the nature of what it means, right. that's the nature of Hamas, that's the nature of Gaza, when you don't have a country with a military where you can have your own bases, the and you're under surveillance from a neighboring country, you have to go underground. So is the, so are we just openly saying you're allowed to kill every child, every civilian in Gaza if it means getting Hamas? I mean, it's warfare. They're at war with Hamas, and they are committed to its utter destruction, and they could end the violence and the killing of kids any day by giving up the fight against this insurmountable enemy. If you're, now, if your question is, should we support and fund it, my answer is no. I agree well, with you on the underlying— we are supporting and Okay, but I agree it. with you on the underlying funding issue, not because I particularly want to hold Israel accountable, but because I don't think the U.S. should be paying for the defense of other countries, particularly one that is perfectly able to afford its own, its, its, uh, its, its own weapons. Well, so I would—I yeah. agree with you on that, but I, we just—we don't agree on the fundamental Regardless if you want to hold Israel accountable, there are—there is something called international law, and there are accountability. Yeah, mechanisms, I don't care about that either. which are in fact in place, and the United States seem to care a great deal because they are really shying away from and castigating anybody who implies that there is in fact a genocide happening before our eyes. I mean, a lot of folks, even anti-interventionists, RFK Jr. has said this, will say things like, "Well, I'm an anti-interventionist, but I would have intervened in World War II." Some understanding that there is a kind of a gravity of a humanitarian crisis, millions of Jewish people packed into concentration camps and death camps but that know? would justify some kind of international intervention, even if it's a political intervention, like the one that is in the works at the but ICJ. That, I, I, but wait a minute. Okay. If that's the case, it seems bizarre to see 
statements of intent that are frankly rather unprecedented. Normally that's the hardest part of a genocide case to prove. But in this moment, we have dozens and dozens of statements from senior members of the Israeli government, including Netanyahu, that are clear statements of genocidal intent. And we see actions. We see the destruction of a community. We see the destruction of civil buildings. We see the destruction of education buildings. We see cemeteries that are dug up. We've seen damage to Jewish cemeteries, which Palestinians have been faithfully guarding and protecting for generations that have now been killed by the IDF. We see the IDF shooting their own prisoners every, every, in the head. Everything you're describing takes place uh, hostages, in, rather. in warfare and took place in our, it, we did that to Germany and to Japan as part of our effort against them and tons of innocent civilians died tons of it but we said that was necessary to defeat this evil force that's not what we that said had attacked Robbie. us after that happened we would have destroyed we, minute, every Robbie. city of Jap in that's Japan until happened. they surrendered after that happened we established these international rules because we were so horrified and disgusted by the but conduct if the international that happened rules during just World War II or a state from killing evil terrorist regimes, then they're, what good are they? That's the opposite of what these international rules do. What these international rules, in effect, are doing are offering immunity to us and to our allies like Israel while condemning everybody else in the world when they do the, those kinds of things. This is an opportunity to actually have equity with those international rules and hold Israel and the United States account for genocides the same way that we are so quick to cast judgment, rightly so, on people in other parts of the world when they treat their populations horribly. So regardless of what you think, I understand, Robbie, you're a human being that exists in the world and you're entitled to your perspectives. But frankly, I think it derails the conversation when we're not talking about whether or not the ICJ, which exists and which is a, a part of a body of international law and, and treaties that we subscribe to and that we are signatories to as in the United States of America, and which Israel is a signatory to, a signatory of the Genocide Convention. They have an obligation under the law, not to be killing civilians the way that they're doing. And so the question is whether or not those organizations are going to hold them accountable and whether or not the United States is going to no. follow its own law, like the lay, the lay, lay law, which precludes us from giving money to Our obligation to is the defense company, of— um, Countries that are committing war crimes. The U.S. government's obligation is to the defense of its citizenry. I'm, that's true for Israel as well. And we're not going to— international law ourselves into being able to stop terrorist groups that have attacked us. Wait, what? Exactly what I just said. Okay. Inter if international law only constrains state actors from defeating terrorist groups when they're attacked, what good is international law? What are you law? talking about? What, why, why are you just saying I'm that saying that's what international law I'm saying does. we shouldn't. I'm saying this is why we're ignoring it. No. It's not why we're ignoring it. We're ignoring it because, as our politicians have said repeatedly, they see Israel as a strategic advantage for us in the Middle East, and so we're willing to look the other way as they massacre tens of thousands of civilians with our tax dollars and with our bombs. All right, more rising right after this. More trouble for Georgia DA Fonnie Willis as whistleblowers are lining up to testify against her on allegations that the DA misused state and local funds. The Georgia Senate has formally begun investigating whether Willis is guilty of misconduct after a cavalcade of staffers testified to the misuse of funds in Willis's office. Now, Georgia Republicans repeatedly argued during the hearing announcing the investigation that this was not a political witch hunt, but rather designed to seek the truth. 
This comes as Willis continues to face criticism for her relationship with the special prosecutor assigned to handle the state's Trump election interference case, Nathan Wade. A new filing against Wade and Willis by Michael Roman, one of the defendants in the state's case, alleges that the DA lied about when she started her relationship with Wade. Willis has alleged that she and Wade began their relationship after Wade was hired as special prosecutor. The new filing alleges that, in fact, the relationship began before the hiring and that this should disqualify Willis and her team from the case. Hmm. Yeah, it's very bad. <laughs> I just don't understand why there is a commitment to the Democratic Party staying behind this. The interests are so much bigger than Fannie Willis. Who cares if she's yeah. the one? Like, I understand that it takes time for people to catch up on the case. I understand that there is some um, kind of knowledge and experience lost there. But this case is so high profile that it's difficult for me to imagine that there aren't scores of lawyers that have, haven't been following this very closely, that there isn't a, a broad informal team that has been a part of this going throughout, and that Democrats don't have at their disposal the most gifted and talented and experienced lawyers in the entire country to call upon in this moment to step in. So why are we continuing to litigate? Why is the country's now attention taken from what we're being told is this democracy-implicating case about the president allegedly trying to overturn right. the election results in 2020 into a smutty domestic dispute about whether or not a prosecutor started dating her boyfriend before or after a certain date. Yeah. In addition to the other things alleged by whistleblowers, including how sure. funds were allocated in her office, you know, someone uh, on, on uh, audio now, releasing audio footage and coming forward to say that she warned Fonnie Willis about funds being misspent, and Fonnie mm -hmm. Willis agreed and then fired her anyway. A um, lot going on here. Obviously, the, the Nathan Wade situation is alleged to be a kickback, that he was hired, and now they're saying they were already dating and that he was paid and then he took her on trips so it was kind of she's using the, the, the funds she was paying to his salary for her own benefit. Uh, this be, As you said, this being a very important case, the one, frankly, most likely to doom Donald Trump in the way that it was charged as a, almost as a RICO matter. Many of his associates also charged. They have incentive to, um, because, what they're, because the prosecutors are really going after Trump, but the other charged people have incentive to cooperate, to say that they did it on Trump's behest, that he was involved in this conspiracy, so that they avoid charges. That's how it works. And also, these are state charges and not ones that right. um, Trump can can just, um, you know, snap his fingers and Thanos out of existence if he becomes president <laughs> again. So it's a very high-stakes case, and they have found quite a cast of characters to be handling it, it seems. It, I, I would also say, I know this is perhaps a strained analogy, but there is now reporting, there is some pushback to the kind of summary firing of the UNRWA uh, employees that were fired after there was an allegation that they were involved in October 7th. Mm -hmm. And now there's some reporting about how, well, were they given due process? Did the UN even look into this before they just did it? And obviously the politics around that situation makes it touching. You kind of can understand why UNRWA would be like, fine, we'll get rid of these ones, just please don't cut off all of our aid. Mm -hmm. Even if from a due process perspective as an employee, that is very much less than ideal. But it does seem, it's, it strikes me as very odd that the urgency that UNRWA showed in saying, mm. fine, we'll just get rid of these employees, mm. isn't being shown by Democrats in this situation where the stakes are, you know, not life and limb. It's, it's, can we get a different prosecutor? Now, if, if, if what you're saying, if the argument is that what Republicans are alleging here 
is so unsubstantiated, is so unjustified, that it really is just a witch hunt that is, has no actual um, ethical violations at stake. Well, then that's that would be something. Then I would say, yeah. fine, stand by your girl. It doesn't but seem that like doesn't that's what they're saying. <laughs> what's going on here? I mean, I'm, I'm reading through the NBC did a did a, a uh, an article about a week ago uh, titled "Lawyers and Ethics Experts Defend Fonnie Willis as Trump Seeks a Removal in the Georgia Case." And what what they're saying is things like, "We have no independent knowledge whether there was a personal relationship at the time of hiring." Uh, okay, well, okay. guess what? Republicans are going to find out. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're going to find that out soon enough. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like there's a lot of transparency happening from the Willis camp, which I'm sorry. She's frankly, igno wait, and she's acknowledged the relationship. I don't, what do you mean? Well, it's, it's not the independently. Timing of it. Is, is, is the is the uh -oh. argument now that we started dating after he was hired, we were working closely together, the relationship blossomed, and then the argument that it was a kind of a pay-for-play hiring goes out the window, right? And they go on and they say paying for gifts for a romantic partner out of one's income is normal in the context of a marriage or other romantic relationship. This is from um, the filing. Neither the relationship nor the alleged financial benefit to Dave Willis justifies disqualification under Georgia law. I mean, maybe that's the case. Mm -hmm. May maybe that's the case. But it does, it does seem... I don't know, just like a completely unnecessary road for us to be going down. But there, this is on the heels of some pretty interesting news, obviously, out of last week in a related uh, Trump case that we wanted to get to. So last week in indictment news, we uh, found out that his um, the case to dismiss his case uh, on the basis of uh, immunity, broad immunity, was rejected by the federal appellate court. Um, but this week... Today, actually, we're likely to find out whether or not Donald Trump is going to appeal that immunity argument to the Supreme Court. Remember that last week, the federal appeals court unanimously rejected Trump's claim that he was immune from prosecution related to his election subversion charges. The trial was paused pending that ruling and will resume now unless Trump files an application today to extend the pause until the Supreme Court rules. Now, here's where things get rather interesting. Depending on what the Supreme Court decides to do with this case, the outcome be, could be that the trial is delayed until after the election day. If the court denies the petition seeking review, it would restart the trial. If it hears Trump's appeal on an expedited schedule, the results could still be known prior to election day. But if it decides the case on its regular review schedule, the trial would likely be delayed past election day, giving the Supreme Court an unusual hmm. role in this political process. Hmm. Now. After last week's decision, many folks looked at that and said the detail, the thoroughness of that decision, the fact that it was untitled but unanimous, that no one judge could be attributed to it, and then we start looking into their political background and coming up with ex explanations as to why it was politically motivated and should be ignored, and the fact that it was very thorough suggested that the appellate court intended for this to be the final say in this issue and hoped perhaps that it would not go to a Supreme Court review and that the Supreme Court would agree that this is a really political question. The appellate court did a good job in resolving this case. There seems to be a lot of unanimity among legal scholars that his really, really broad immunity claims just don't pass muster, and that could be the end of it. Right. But there is and this chance. Yeah. There is this chance that the Supreme <laughs> Court, given the political nature of these well, things we just have to acknowledge, could say we are going to review it. And we're going to take our time to review it. And then what does that mean, given that um, there was a poll that was taken just last week that showed that around half of swing state voters say, they say they wouldn't vote for Donald Trump if he were convicted of a crime. Now, if you push the conviction until after, the, you know, the potential conviction until after election date, is the Supreme Court then putting its finger on the scale mm. and preventing those voters that might not otherwise have voted for Donald Trump from being able to make an informed decision? Yeah, I, I 
find it um, very likely that they will eventually say that the, um, the the blanket immunity argument is no good, does not hold up constitutionally whatsoever. I, and frankly, I think everyone but the most like rankly partisan people have reached that conclusion. But you're right that a delay in it could uh, make a difference in terms of the election. Obviously, there was more Trump-related SCOTUS news last week as well. I believe they talked about it on Friday. But um, in case anyone missed it, um, the Supreme Court did hear arguments about the ballot disqualification issue where um, many of the justices seemed deeply skeptical. Mm -hmm. I think Elena Kagan said specifically, are you, you're arguing that, uh, that one state can disqualify someone from running for president, essentially. Other people ask, you know, what if this, now yeah. Republicans do this to Democrats, Democrats do this to Republicans. Um, a, lot, a lot of questions, again, even from the liberal or Democratic appointed um, justices. It, Sound, you know, it's always hard to exactly anticipate, but based on what we heard, it seems exceedingly likely to me that um, the Colorado decision will be overturned, possibly by all or most of the Supreme Court. Yeah. And, and some political slash legal commentators are asking the question, well, does this, is the Supreme Court have the mindset where they think, well, we'll give one to this side and we'll yeah. give one to that side? Okay, we're going to say you can't strike Trump from the ballot, but we are going to um, uphold the, uh, the, the appellate court's decision on this immunity. And others have said, well, that shouldn't be the way that it goes. Right. At the end of the day, you need to be deciding the law right. and not saying Although we're going to give one to you, give, give one to the others. But I, do think I, I happen merits, to think those would be the correct yeah. outcome. I, but, yeah. I, I agree as well. Yeah. All right, stick around. More Rising coming up next. An ad for 2024 independent presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. ran during the Super Bowl last night. Let's take a look at that. want a man for president who's seasoned through and through a man who's old enough to know and young enough to do well it's up to you it's up to you it's strictly up to you now, Kennedy received some critical responses for the ad on X, his cousin Bobby writing, my cousin's Super Bowl ad used our uncle's faces and my mother's. She would be appalled by his deadly health care views. Respect for science, vaccines, and health care equity were in her DNA. She strongly supported my health care work at one campaign, which he opposes, RFK mm. Jr. RFK responded to criticism on Twitter, saying, quote, I'm so sorry if the Super Bowl advertisement caused anyone in my family pain. The ad was created and aired by the American Values Super PAC without any involvement or approval from my campaign. FEC rules prohibit Super PACs from consulting with me or my staff. I love you all. God bless you. But one Twitter user pointed out that the video of the ad is still pinned on RFK Jr.'s official Twitter account. And as I look right now, that is still true. The ad has 39,000 likes and is pinned to the top of the page. And in addition to the apology that he posted directly to Bobby Shriver, he tweeted another apology that's substantially similar um, that is still up on his page. Mm. And, and so it is a little bit difficult to parse what he's apologizing for well, if he likes the ad enough to still be associating with it. I like the ad. I didn't see what there was to apologize 
regarding it, frankly. I know the, many of his other family members don't support his candidacy and don't share his views, and, you know, that's their prerogative, and families often have people with different political views in them. I didn't think the ad was at all disrespectful to uh, to any any other Kennedy. Um, I, I, I liked it. I thought it was clever. And, uh, I mean, the original ad, of course, is very iconic, the Kennedy, Kennedy song. I think we actually have it. Let's, let's play that. A man for president who's seasoned through and through, but that's a doggone season that he won't try something new. A man who's old enough to know. Yeah. So, you know, to just moot this out, I think the critique from the Kennedy family one is substantive. They disagree with a list of his views that were set out, whether it's about the vaccine stuff or, or, or something else. But additionally, the original ad and the kind of the Kennedy mystique is all about being very closely associated with the Democratic Party. As you saw in the original Kennedy ad, it says, vote Democratic, vote Democratic, repeatedly. And so the question is, is there something sort of inappropriate about hmm. capturing the goodwill that's associated with Camelot and the, the Kennedy family as a bedrock Democratic establishment family for the purposes of an independent run that also supports a number of beliefs that are not perhaps in line with people who are in the original, what, what, what people who are in the original Kennedy ad would have espoused themselves. I mean, RFK Jr. was running as a Democrat and he, he might, well, he might take the position that they were not having a remotely, the, the Democratic Party was not remotely interested in an actual primary process to challenge Joe Biden. And so he's running as an independent, but he would say he still shares many of the values of the Democratic Party, other values it has turned its back on, and, uh, and that's on them, not on him. Is, I think that's what he would say. You yeah. can reject that, but— He can make that case, but that's, this is the problem. If you have real critiques of the Democratic Party, which I would argue you should, then what is the purpose of trying to draw on nostalgia that is associated with the Democratic Party and its mm. failures, frankly, to advance your own personal? I think he was just drawing on Kennedy nostalgia. Right, but what does right. that? What does that mean? And th does that? If you're if you're trading on the goodwill of your family's name, and I don't mm. mean that as an insult. I mean just quite literally trading on the goodwill of your family's name, then does that then give rise to legitimate grievances from your family who think that the things that you're advancing, rightly or wrongly, this is not a personal judgment, sure. the things that you're advancing, frankly, have nothing to do with the Kennedy goodwill? Maybe I think he's appealing to the... Um, the freshness, the youth of JFK, which also does apply to RFK Jr. Because Ed, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how old he is, but he's he 70. Is, he is the spring chicken in the race. He is the youthful candidate in this matchup between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, who are both um, older than right. RFK he, Jr. He's 70. So wow. you know, and this is I but think do you see a little how many bit of a. You can do? This is a little bit of a frustration, I think, for some of the other candidates. I mean, he's the same age as Marianne Williamson. I think they were a year apart. Yeah, they're... Um, Dean Phillips, I think, is in his mid-50s. Um, I'm not entirely sure how old uh, Cornell West. I can find that very quickly. He's 70 years old as well. So I do think that he gets some, like, unfair uh, goodwill on that front as well. And, but the bigger question, I think, here is who is this ad supposed to be appealing to? He is someone who did not have very much success as a Boomers. Democrat. 
<laughs> no, I mean in terms of politically. He didn't have very much success as a Democrat. When he was a Democrat, his campaign um, uh, website was emblazoned with Kennedy Democrat, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Democrat. But that was never a very good match with the audience of people who he appealed to. When he would occasionally tweet something last year about the fact that he was an environmental lawyer that thinks the EPA is a good thing and we should have environmental yeah. regulations, when he would tweet about how he thought student debt should be canceled, when he would tweet innocuously about how like racism is bad, he would get all of this negative pushback from his base. And so in some ways, I think the rebranding as an independent is helpful to him, but it doesn't necessarily come with the accordant shift in his policy platform. And he's really benefiting, I think, from the ambiguity that the label independent allows him to well, have. An ad like this squarely puts him back in that, hey, I'm a Democrat. I think government programs should be funded. I support Social Security. I maybe even support a more expansive health care system. I support environmental re regulations. I'm a, I'm a regulations yeah, guy. Yeah, I mean, he says that all the time. I don't think he's he being disingenuous. No, he, he does. He doesn't say it all the he time. He tweets it all the time. He, he, he does it. This is he tweets it very infrequently, and I think it's because he gets very negative backlash when he does. What he talks about, what the platforms he's been given are from these politically amorphous, right-leaning figures like Elon Musk and like David Sachs, yeah. kind of libertarian right figures. And when he goes on those shows, he talks about the subjects that they all agree on. I'm not. This is not a criticism. Well, not all. I reality. mean, he just got. You know, he got torn apart on Dave Smith's show over over your favorite issue, over Israel, so. Well, yeah, I think, well, that's because there's no, there's no independent media that's enthusiastic about funding Israel. There just yeah. isn't. So that's an area where he, there's no, like, safe space for him. But generally speaking, he's been able to, I think, obscure. People were genuinely surprised when they saw some of his views about student debt cancellation, for instance. Like, who is this guy? He's a Democrat? Well, yeah, he's a Democrat. But when you listen to him on Bill Maher, when you listen to him talking to Elon Musk, you just, he, they are not asking him about his environmental policy. And so an ad like this, that's just the, the point I'm trying to make is that an ad like this, it seems to be wanting to appeal to people who like the idea that he's a Kennedy Democrat, but that just fundamentally isn't his audience, so who is this commercial for? I mean, but a lot of people, Brianna, who would have considered themselves, who they were Kennedy Dem, I mean, much older people, obviously, were Kennedy Democrats and then ended up voting for Ronald Reagan 20 years later. So there's a, there's a you know, political evolution in thinking. I think there are people who have fond memories of Kennedy, the Kennedy family are iconic, but also have a mix of some right-wing views and, and then maybe some less right-wing views on many of the issues you're talking about. I mean, a person who wants basic funding for welfare and some kind of environmental regulation, but is very skeptical of mainstream narratives on vaccines and some aspects of foreign policy, but a mixed, mixed bag of that. Maybe that's what he's offering, but that probably describes a lot of people, frankly. And people those, are not so consistent in their, as you know, you and I are, as like and those, and those deeply people, committed left and, and deeply committed and libertarian. And see a campaign ad that's like a cut and paste, a, a, a copy and paste of JFK's campaign ad and say, that reflects to me the kind of values that I think RFK Jr. has and which I like. I think that might be the case. But. I don't think so. And there does seem to be some indication. I'm having a little bit of trouble getting this um, uh, link open, but you know, ad, uh, ad, at the ad meter does an assessment at USA Today of how these um, uh, Super Bowl 58 commercials were received. And apparently, the Kennedy ad did not fare well. Now, 
That doesn't mean the world, the moon, and the stars. Again, I think part of the issue is that it's an audience mis mismatch, right? But again, that's why I'm confused. Like, who? I saw people on social media mostly discussing it positively. Yeah, um, now, a lot of pe the people audience. on social media are right, are, are pro RFK Jr. people, but. But of course, but I mean, you're saying, well, they should be turned off by the reminder that he's a Democrat because they're all right-wing no, people, not and that's not I think that was not the, their response to if it. If you're in the if you're in his camp, you're in his camp, so you don't care. But this ads that you spend millions of dollars to play during the Super Bowl aren't intended to preach well, again, to the he choir. Didn't, he didn't spend. He's that your super pack spends this. millions of dollars to play during the Super Bowl aren't intended to speak to the choir. The whole point of a Super Bowl ad is it's supposed to have universal appeal, which is why you get ads where they put Patrick Stewart from Star Trek, uh, Ar Hey Arnold for Millennial Millennial that was a great ad. Bait, was my favorite one. Peppa Pig for the kids. Creed for the, I don't know, Gen X, or I don't know. And you cram them all into an ad and it, it does well because people well, like that mass appeal. This, I, mean, I just, I don't I don't okay. see who is I liked see it. this ad. <laughs> Sorry, I liked it. I, I, I get it, Robbie, but with all due respect, this isn't a conversation about what you personally liked. This is a conversation about the efficacy of an ad that's been run by RFK Jr. and whether or not it's gonna get him more voters or not. And I simply don't see this particular ad as tapping into a new voter base, especially because it does not make an argument for why people should vote for him other than that I'm a Kennedy. It doesn't talk about policies. It doesn't make right. a critique of the establishment. It doesn't talk about any of the substantive reasons that I think that people are attracted to his campaign for good reason, right? I think it will resonate positively with people and create a positive association in their minds between his candidacy and a beloved iconic president who a lot of people look back and remember fondly, but we shall see. Let us know what you thought about this ad in the comments, please. I check them on occasion. Brianna does too, maybe? No. Never. More rising right after this. The mainstream media is coming in hot with their responses to Tucker Carlson's interview with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Aired last week, one CNN headline read, Putin walks away with propaganda victory after Tucker Carlson's softball interview. CNN wrote, over the course of the more than two-hour sit-down, the former Fox News host turned online commentator largely refrained from challenging the Russian authoritarian whose brutal war on Ukraine has led to the needless deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Mm. The article continued, instead of pressing Putin on the many topics at hand, including credible accusations, Russia has committed war crimes and the imprisonment of opposition leader Alexei Navalny, Carlson allowed the autocrat a free lane to manipulate the public and tell his version of, of history, no matter how deceptive it may have been. MSNBC also chimed in, writing, Tucker Carlson just gave Vladimir Putin exactly what he wanted. Putin is a former KGB officer. That means he's a master at manipulating and exploiting events for desired outcomes. Mm. All right, so look, here's what is true and what I said going into this interview, that doing the interview is not a bad idea. However, when you are in a situation where you have a really important guest and it's a very high-profile interview, you have to be so prepared so that you don't become the exploited party in the interview. And... Right off the bat, knowing who Putin is, knowing how smart he is, knowing what his background is, he clearly has the upper hand in a situation like this with Tucker Carlson. I wouldn't want to do this because I'm not an expert in Russian history. I'm not an expert in geopolitical history. I would feel out of my depth For sure. in this situation. Anybody can 
get up to speed. I believe in Tucker's capacity, I believe in my capacity, but you have to put it and do the work. And although I think a lot of the liberal hand-wringing about this interview is coming from a place of bias, the critique that Tucker was out of his depth at times in this interview and was not able to effectively get Putin to answer specific questions that were more clarifying than obscuring is a true critique. I think so too, but I would say some interesting stuff came out of yeah, this anyway, and, and the headlines being that this is the worst thing that's ever happened. I mean, they're so condemning. They, they talk about this like this was the worst thing that has ever happened in human history, as Tucker Carlson talking to Vladimir Putin. I learned some interesting things. Um, at one point, Tucker Carlson said, Vladimir Putin says, you know, let's have peace. I want peace. And Tucker says, like, okay, call Joe Biden right now. Let's make peace. And then Putin's like, well, no, no, no. End the military aid, and then it will be over, and then we'll see. Like, okay, well, so that's not what you just said. Um, but look, also, we do have to remember the mainstream media interviews Zelensky all the time. We get to hear from Zelensky all the time. I would say a lot of those interviews include very little pushback. Um, so so there's some kind of implicit framing here in that what, what Putin is saying, that I want you to stop arming Ukraine, is just is de facto wrong. So him saying it, it's like you're not supposed to hear him saying that because that position is wrong. Now, that's not how a lot of the American people feel. It's not how many of the Republican Party members feel. They have questions whether this continued funding is good. And so I think it was helpful to hear that perspective. And in some of his comments, I was particularly struck by the Washington Post commentary on this. This, this Here's a paragraph in the Washington Post just, just slamming this interview. Putin also told Carlson that a main reason for the invasion and one of Moscow's continuing chief goals is the denazification of Ukraine, part of Putin's continuing false allegation that Kiev is controlled by Nazis. Ukraine. And now, this is just a claim they're making in this Washington Post article. Ukraine is a democracy, and Zelensky, who was overwhelmingly elected president in 2019, is of Jewish descent, as are other top officials. Putin's real goal, many analysts say, is to oust Zelensky in favor of a Russian puppet regime. Look, Ukraine is sort of a democracy. They've suspended opposition parties. They've just suspended opposition media. Um, I, I do not think Zelensky is not a Nazi and top, top officials are not Nazis, but there are, in fact, Nazi battalions that are part of the, like, that's just true. It's uncomfortable. Mainstream media hates when you right. point it out, but it is, in fact, true. Putin says his goal is not the overthrow of the entire country, but a return of these disputed territories. Now, you can say he's lying, that's not true, but we've heard from Zelensky's perspective why should we not also hear Putin's perspective on the conflict so that we can make an informed judgment as taxpayers for what we're, what we're going to fund here? And Putin specifically spoke to the story we covered uh, where Canada awarded this big award to a Nazi and had to retract it, um, specifically alluded to Zelensky visiting um, Nazi Azov, you know, Italian yeah. troops in Ukraine. Um, and instead of engaging with those pointed and legitimate criticisms, even to the extent of, of saying there are some Nazis in Ukraine, but they are not the overwhelming gist, and we still think that even that that's a legitimate goal, that's a pretext for actions that are not appropriate or validated by the laws of war. I right. mean, you could say something like that, but they go so far in the opposite direction. I agree they end up kind of, frankly, making themselves look like such unreliable um, critics that some of the things that I think Putin should be yes. offer some pushback on just could go unanalyzed. Un, un so Putin also talked about, in addition to the denazification argument, 
um, the Nord Stream pipeline. Tucker asked him, well, who do you think blew up the Nord Stream pipeline? And, you know, Putin, Putin is good. He's a KGB. He's able to slip and slide out of some of this. There's the translation delay that I think made it not the easiest job for Tucker as well. Maybe it would be nice to have someone interview him in Russian. There's plenty of Americans that speak Russian and are also journalists. That seems like a good way to go. Um, but he, he said, well, look, you have to have a confluence of ability and interest in doing something like that. There are a lot of people who might have an interest in blowing up the pipeline, not so many that have the ability. And basically, what do you think? It was an interesting exchange. Um, he denied the idea that he is uh, endeavoring to start some kind of global, global war and conquer all of Europe, which has very much been the line out of the West. Um, he says it doesn't make any sense. Tucker asked him, is there a world where we could see you like invading Poland? He said, what interest do I have in invading Poland? What interest do I have in starting World War III? People have been saying about Russia for years that we have nuclear bombs. We're going to drop nuclear right. bombs. What interest do I have in this? And why aren't these accusations basically being made to other nuclear powers? And on and on and on. So it is a shame to not be able to have the perspective of the fact that this was a wholesome, like a, a, a holistic interview that touched on a number of subjects that, frankly, are, are not conversations that are brought up with our allies, as you pointed out with Zelensky. And the read that we just had where somebody mentioned, you know, why isn't he being challenged on war crimes that he's perpetrated in Ukraine, I, 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 it springs to mind immediately that why, when Netanyahu is doing mainstream mm -hmm. interviews, is he's not being challenged on war crimes, especially since we have this, the highest international court weighing in to say that not just any old war crime, but genocide is plausible in Gaza. I mean, the double standard, again, is just such that it makes you—it really undermines the value of the mainstream media. Yeah. And— and look, again, you can say that, that he's wrong. I don't, you know, you can conclude after listening to this, I don't believe Vladimir Putin. Yeah. I do think he has imperial ambitions. Sure. This war is unjustified, and he's trying to get us to not give any more weapons, and then I think he's going to invade the whole country. Like, you can still reach that conclusion yeah. if you want, but I don't know, it, it doesn't seem fair. In fact, it seems a little propagandistic mm. to say you should be shielded from this perspective, but you should uncritically receive the Zelensky perspective at every at every turn, yeah. it doesn't make any sense to me. So, um, so I, <laughs> I thought it was pretty interesting. And and you know, and then in fairer recaps of what happened, uh, or what went on in the interview, like I saw, you know, Slate had a headline that was um, everything that was wrong with Tucker Carlson's Putin interview, and it was you know very critical. But they do acknowledge that when he's talking about the history of NATO and what was that there is, you know, some of it was exaggerated on the Putin part, how aggrieved he is over the NATO stuff, but that some of it was accurate, describing that that um, NATO membership was said it was never going to happen, then it was offered, then it was you know that whole kind of history of, of how things went down from from Clinton and then Bush in a way that made uh, Russia feel feel boxed in. So. Um, so anyway, I, I thought it was interesting after all, and uh, not certainly not something that that you you, you would be you you know sh cover your ears so that you don't hear this this you've got to let people decide for themselves at some point. I think it's fair to say there should have been more pushback. Frankly, he was so he just went on and on at the beginning. It was it was hard to get a word in, and because of the yeah. translation issues, I think it was a a, a daunting task. Yeah. But um, I found it found it interesting. Well, big big. Um Big numbers for Tucker Carlson uh, with this, along with a lot of his other interviews. Certainly, it does seem to be modeling a avenue for success for alternative media. He is able to get these big interviews, and a lot, a lot of people are tuning in, even if the mainstream news coverage is not so fond of that reality. So, let us know what you think in the comments and stick around. We have more rising for you coming up. Two 
President Biden is finally traveling to East Palestine, Ohio. This week, one year after a Norfolk Southern train derailed there, spilling a slew of hazardous chemicals into the surrounding environment. The White House said this weekend that the president will travel there to ensure that state and local officials hold Norfolk Southern accountable. East Palestine residents are still feeling the effects of the contamination one year after the spill. News Nation reporter Evan Lambert has been awarded more than $80,000 to settle a lawsuit over his arrest in East Palestine at a news oh, conference yeah. last year. Hmm. So obviously we've said for a while that he should have visited and he really missed an opportunity when Trump did travel there and Biden chose not to. Mm -hmm. And uh, in some way, Republicans were able to claim this as their issue, even though Trump's own policies were more um, railroad friendly than, uh, than he was letting out to be. Yes, and in fact, kind of deregulatory moves that happened under during the Trump administration, as the lever uh, covered, have a arguably close causal relationship to the kind of brakes not being installed on the train that would have averted this kind of a tragedy, and on and on and on. Um, so I don't think there's really any w winners here, but Trump was able to claim a victory by at least showing up and making the right motions with his mouth. Biden, though he was president at the time, declined to act in this way. It even took uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg a mm -hmm. while to get there himself, and certainly it didn't cause the same kind of media hubbub as, you know, a popular former president showing up um, and kind of glad-handing in the way that he is pretty good at, I will say, about Donald Trump. And so the, this raises some questions about why this is happening and why now especially on the heels of what was one of Joe Biden's all-time worst media days last Friday, when he got hit um, with his news that the reason that he basically wasn't being asked to be <laughs> accountable for the mishandling of classified documents was because he was seen to be elderly old and forgetful and not all there. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Uh, and then in, an, in a press conference to remediate that perception, ended up making another gaffe confusing one world leader for another. Now, is this an attempt by the administration to say, hey, look, he can be out and about, he can do events, um, he can be out in the public, he can campaign, and is it going to work? Yeah, I'm reading a lot more. We already talked today about the Biden um, age issues, but there's, uh, frankly, there's more to discuss. Even since we started talking today, more people have weighed in. I, I caught this article by Jonathan Chade, who writes for New York Magazine, who I do, frankly, like a lot of his takes. Um, he's very much in the kind of anti-cancel culture, anti-wokeness stuff. But saying that, well, conceding, like, well, even if Joe Biden's utterly, you know, mentally incapable, is that so bad? Because he can have his advisors to make all his decisions. And, like, he even alludes to the Reagan issue, where, you know, people allege that Reagan was already suffering from right. Alzheimer's at the end of his term. But that shouldn't matter, I guess, which is, I don't, I don't think that is, is that particularly persuasive to, to anyone. Um, I'm seeing this Politico article that says uh, Democrats might need a plan B, here's what it would look like, which does admit what I've said, which is that there can be no Biden replacement unless Biden himself agrees to it. He is going into the convention with the delegates. There's, it's too late for anything to be done in terms of the process, so he would have to decide to step aside, and then there could actually be a showdown at the convention, likely involving Kamala Harris, who has said, um, Fox reports that she said in just just recently in a Wall Street Journal interview that she is ready to serve if, uh, if it's come to that. Of course, she is not 
the most popular political figure herself. No, but you did see polls that show that generic Democrat beat Donald Trump, and yeah. it was really Biden who had this um, yeah. these unique vulnerabilities. Now, other people's unique vulnerabilities emerge the second that they're the ones in right. the hot seats, hot seats. So I wouldn't, you know, be overly confident about Kamala Harris. But honestly, at this point, given Biden's unfavorables and frankly just the reality of how unable he seems to present himself to the public. It seems like there's frankly upside even to having Kamala Harris there instead. We talked in an earlier segment about how few uh, interviews Joe Biden has done as compared to Donald Trump or uh, Barack Obama and their presidencies. And it's hard to imagine how he's going to get through this campaign season, not just advocating for himself, but presenting a vision of what the Democratic Party is supposed to stand for as its top spokesperson if he can't confidently get out in front of the cameras and make that pitch. I'm also curious as to whether or not some of the weird mixed messaging that's coming out around his handling of Israel Gaza, which obviously has flagged mm -hmm. him as well, is a result of him not really taking this issue by the reins. Progressives for months now have been pointing out other historical examples of the United States or uh, in one case, Thatcher basically picking up the phone and saying, you've got to stop Israel when there have been excessive civilian casualties as a consequence of one or another of the, their bombardments. And people have been asking the question, well, why isn't Joe Biden doing something? Why is he just floating these statements that say, hey, I don't like what Putin is doing? Oh, Biden used the F word in response mm -hmm. to Putin behind closed doors. Oh, it sounds like he's really unhappy. Why is that all we're getting from him instead of getting this moment we're all imagining, which has happened in, in, in the historical record of the American president picking up the phone and saying, no, you have to stop now. Well, maybe it is not this ideological issue the way that many of us have presumed, or maybe it's a mix of it being an ideological commitment that he has to Israel being able to do whatever it wants, but also not having the wherewithal and the confidence and the strength and the cognitive and analytical ability to really make that argument and to yeah. stand up to Netanyahu. Yeah, I, that's what people are going to be wondering. Um, I saw some people were, were circulating on social media um, this Time magazine cover from uh, 1996 when Bob Dole was a Republican candidate that said, like, the cover says, is he too old to be president? Mm. He was 73 at the time. Mm. Biden's 81. Yeah. I mean, Reagan was 73 when he ran for his second term. That was yeah. considered, um, that was an open question. Now, obviously, Trump, 77. So again, it's a lot of it's a lot of older figures. But I also do think it's not just age, right? It's not like uh, well, Bernie Sanders is he's, not yeah. fumbling all over the place as he's doing late night hits as he's been doing all this week. You know, Nancy Pelosi and right. you know, uh, Chuck people, Grassley is 800 years old, and I haven't seen him exactly. Made, there are people yet. who it's, I do no, not I know, like, but, to be clear, like Nancy Pelosi, whose politics yeah. are not my own, who I'm not going to make the case that they're too old to be president. I have substantive arguments yeah. as to why Nancy Pelosi shouldn't be president. But Joe Biden, specifically, in a world of older people and a Congress filled with octogenarians, is not doing well. I can't imagine him. I mean, I. Assume we're going to have them still, right? The debates, the the, the Trump Biden debates. But if I were his handlers, I'd be terrified to let him on stage. Just period. He can't get through these interviews. How? Can, which, which are not. Sometimes these interviews aren't particularly adversarial. Sometimes the press no. is helping him because it's awkward. They want him to be able to finish his his sentence and get it his train back on thought. What happens when he's actually in an intensely adversarial environment with a moderator and with another candidate? It's it's becoming. 
difficult to imagine him successfully doing that. Maybe it won't matter, but yeah, it, it, you're talking about you know the risk yeah. in changing. But there's and now there's a risk at at keeping him. That is a huge risk because exactly. he's losing in every swing state. Exactly. And if democracy really is on the ballot, what are Democrats doing with this historically unpopular and worrisome choice? Yeah. More rising right after this. All right, Brianna, who are you cheering for at the Super Bowl? Well, I'm an Eagles fan. Obviously, they beat us in the Super yeah. Bowl last year. But because of the relationship between the Kelsey brothers, also because the Kelseys are from Cleveland, where my family is from, I was rooting for the Chiefs and, like, Kelseys by proxy through mm -hmm. Travis. Not because of the Taylor Swift rigmarole. Um, Joe that Biden got to you, too, that huh? <laughs> that didn't hurt. Yeah. No, it's a fun. It's a love story. As Taylor Swift says, it's a love story. Everybody loves that. Well, while Kansas City <laughs> brought home their third Super Bowl trophy, President Biden took the win as an opportunity to jokingly lean into rumors that I just referred to, that the administration was behind this win. Biden took to X last night to acknowledge the Chiefs' win, posting a photo of his laser-eyed alter ego, Dark Brandon, with the caption, just like we drew it up. That was pretty funny. Mm, well, social media users reacted uh, in various ways, not always with humor to that, some referring to it as him homelandering himself, since the Super Bowl also happened to coincide with the siege of Rafah in Gaza, where a civilian population had accumulated. Viewers were also upset about Andre Day's performance of Lift Every Voice and Sing, also known as the Black National Anthem. Congressman Matt Gates wrote on X, they're desecrating America's national anthem by playing something called the Black National Anthem. Congressman Mike Loichik, a Republican lawmaker in the Ohio House of Representatives, said, there's no such thing as a Black National Anthem. We are all Americans united by our great and beautiful star-spangled banner. The Super Bowl is supposed to bring us together. It's a disgrace that the NFL decided to push the politics of racial division again. Prior to the game, former President Trump took to Twitter and accused pop star Taylor Swift of being disloyal should she endorse Joe Biden for president. Trump said, I signed and was responsible for the music Modernization Act for Taylor Swift and all other musical artists. Joe Biden didn't do anything for Taylor and never will. There's no way she could endorse crooked Joe Biden, the worst and most corrupt president in the history of our country, and be disloyal to the man who made her so much money. Ooh, incredible stuff here. So, for one, just as background, uh, Lift Every Voice and Sting started to be included at uh, the Super Bowl after 2020. I didn't realize that. Um, after the George, George Floyd was uh, mm -hmm. killed on camera, uh, really kind of shocking so many Americans who were appalled by seeing that kind of police overreach. It was included as a way to actually bring the country together and have broader kind of um, thematic representation at the Super Bowl. The, the song is actually older than the Star Spangled Banner. It was, of course, as all uh, many black American user uh, listeners are very well aware, aware written as a poem um, by James Weldon Johnson and uh, was adopted as the Black National Anthem in 1919, more than a decade before the Star Spangled Banner was named the broader national anthem. And of course, it's not a song about division. It's about a core aspect of American history um, and those kind of struggles that we overcame as a nation together. It's interesting to me that why it would be characterized as something divisive um, when it certainly isn't exactly a song called Kill Whitey or whatever is <laughs> existing in these politicians' imagination. Yeah, I, I guess um, if they had done it instead of the Star Spangled Banner, I would have seen why people were upset. But they did it 
it was a medley, right? They also did uh, they America did the, the Beautiful. They did America the Beautiful. So if, if they did a bunch of songs, one of them being the Star Spangled Banner, I thought uh, Reba did a great job, and uh, one of them being this song, I, I don't frankly see what the problem is. Me either. But people are going to be mad, including about the dark Brandon meme. So I want to get your take on this. It was really interesting to be online last night because the feed really was this surreal mix of clips of Taylor Swift and clips of a football game and an Americans being happy and enjoying a pastime, Super Bowl commercials and the like, and clips of an incredible amount of destruction coming out of Gaza in the middle of the night. As we may be, we may be aware, um, civilians have been told to go to the southern part of Gaza near Rafa City, Rafa Gate, uh, for the last four months. And now uh, about half the population is, in fact, there, largely set up in a tent city in a giant refugee uh, city. And there have, as we covered last week, uh, Netanyahu has been telegraphing a ground invasion and bombardment of Rafa. But people have nowhere else to go. This is the safe zone that they've been told to evacuate to. And there was a lot of pushback against this. President Biden, are you going to do anything to stop it? The administration said out loud, well, we don't approve this unless there is an evacuation plan to make sure the humanitarian needs of the people who are there are taken care of. That didn't happen. And so you were seeing really visceral images coming out of Rafa last night, including one of a girl child hanging suspended from a wall with her legs having been bl blasted off by a bomb. And so when Joe Biden then posted this meme of him with red glowing eyes, it was hard not to, and, and said, this is all, you know, this is as I planned, just like I drew it up. It was hard not to see that parallel with the horrific images coming out of God and saying, oh yes, this is as you planned, for us all to be distracted by the Super Bowl while our ally, who we are funding, Benjamin Netanyahu, engages in what might be characterized as even more war crimes in Gaza. Um, I did not see any of that sort of discourse. I mean, the, the, him, the him with red eyes thing comes from, well, that started as a Chinese thing, right? Do you remember that? They, uh, they depicted him when, when China was mad at him, some, I believe, Chinese government account years ago um, made a meme of him, like, um, sitting on, I think, the Game of Thrones, Iron Throne, with the, with the red eyes, and it was supposed to be some, that he's some evil figure, and then it was kind of appropriated by pro-Biden people um, to, like, make him seem No, cooler. I get it. And he's yeah. adopted the, the, the yeah. dark Brandon meme, and people think that that's because of vitality and edginess, especially after a really bad media week where he's being characterized as having those exact opposite traits. But the problem is that the timing was really, really bad. So clearly this was posted late at night. It's None of these posts are coming out of the brain of any principal, much less Joe Biden. These are social media managers who are making these choices. But it did really seem to miss the mood of the moment, where so much of the rhetoric on Twitter—I mean, this is a, a post that's designed to reach a Twitter audience. It is a tweet, right? And so much of the discourse on Twitter at the time, the trending topics were Super Bowl and massacre in Rafa. Um, something, there was a, some tag that was trending like the genocide bull, something like that, was literally trending at the time. And so in that context, to be the president of the United States of America and to tweet that out, especially since another part of this dynamic is that there has been a, a history of using um, uh, high-profile American events 
to break ceasefires. So back in 2008, Israel broke a ceasefire during the election of Barack Obama when the world's tension was turned. The last ceasefire ended over the holidays. It was during Thanksgiving break or Christmas break. And the timing of that seemed to be either by design or just in effect to obscure attention on what was going on in Gaza. And now having the Super Bowl timed with this invasion of this densely packed civilian population, you know, it did seem, frankly, they raised questions, I should say, as to whether or not this was planned. And so, again, Joe Biden tweeting out, just as we planned it, it had this odd double valence. And mm. I don't know if you're—I I know, I know you watch um, The Boys and you're familiar with Homelander as a character, but there's this character that is ostensibly the superhero. He is the Captain America Well, he's very figure. much the villain of the show. Right, but that's the whole point, that outwardly— he is supposed to be this embodiment of the American dream and a superhero, but he's a villain with razor led laser yeah. eyes that doesn't use them to do good like Superman does, but does them uses them to commit great evil. So the the parallels there, I think, were difficult for a lot of people to ignore online. Okay. <laughs> By the way, did you did you see the Hillary the Hillary Clinton tweet as well? Yes, uh, she. Uh, I don't know. She right. She did the thing where she just referred to him as. Taylor Swift's boyfriend. Yes. Is so that con right? So congratulations to Taylor Swift's boyfriend. Yeah, I don't know if that's going <laughs> to earn her a lot of plaudits for doing that. Oh, yeah, hey, we have it up on screen. I, I guess that's a, it's a kind of rah-rah feminism that is very much her brand that uh, that uh, I think that's a tweet that could turn people yeah. off. But if she was if she yeah. was running for president right now, I would say, oof, that's yeah, going to— Yeah, but Donald Trump is running for president, and he did that— He said he likes the guy, but screed. he's very—his he, uh, his statement was very much like, I want to like you guys, but I know you're going to endorse—you're going to come out against well, me. Don't do it, and we can be worse. friends. Can we please be friends? It's actually similar to the kind of uh, pay-to-play, explicit pay-to-play that he—that we talked about in earlier segment about NATO. We're not going to protect you, NATO, unless you pay us our dues. Well, uh, Taylor Swift, I, I did so, I earned you so much money um, through my, what was it, copyright or Well, I think was. he was trying to say that my policies were more favorable, were favorable to you, and, you know, how you should could recognize you just, that. How could you be disloyal to the man who made her so much money? I, I yeah. mean, you know, I think there's some questions as to whether or not people have broader interests than their own personal financial interests, and I think a lot of people who are left-leaning feel that way, that the role of the president is to not just look after yourself when you're voting at the booth, but to make sure that they're taking care of your broader American community, whether it's people who are of a different gender or he a different really race. He really does not want different... Taylor Swift to endorse Joe Biden. He really doesn't want her to. All right. Well, we'll I don't know. Maybe it's working. We'll, we'll see if this kind of a tacit threat, I've made you so much money, is what puts Taylor Swift over the line one way or the other. That does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, more of the best damn show that's ours will be available on YouTube. Oh, real quick before we go, I loved the Paramount Plus commercial. That's the, that was the Patrick um, Stewart one? Yeah, Patrick Stewart. Hey Arnold. Yes. Um, Creed. Yes. We, that's what we really want. We all remember that Creed <laughs> halftime show. It wasn't the Super Bowl. It was some other, um, I think it was a Thanksgiving Day show from like 20 years ago. It's available on YouTube. It's the Creed goes so hard. Well, I, and to really satisfy this millennial, even though Usher did a fantastic job, I want Creed at the Super Bowl next year. That's funny. I, I don't think I've been as hyped for a Super Bowl as the one where Usher you know, played last night. I, I, I saw a lot of people saying, we're now elder millennials, the group that everyone's appealing to. Yes. And boy, oh boy, does it feel good, because I was up and dancing and reminiscing about freshman year. 
along with all of Same. my other cr cr crinky jointed elder millennials. So it was a great show. That's what we. That's what what kicked off the middle school dances for us. <laughs> middle school. Oh God, that was middle my school freshman for me, year. High school for you. All right. Okay. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, we're now available wherever you listen to podcasts. See you later. Take care.